electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner. Front and center this hour, your big week playbook. Got 40% of the Dow reporting earnings, many S&P 500 companies, Microsoft reports, Tesla reports. Will it be enough to reignite the rally? Certainly looks like it today. We debate, discuss with the investment committee. Joining me for the hour, Bryn Talkington, Jason Snipe, Stephanie Link, and Joe Terranova right here in the house. Let's check the markets back above around 4,000. There you go, 4,025 on the S&P. NASDAQ's the outperformer. Today got the VIX around 20, the 10 years above 350, the two years above 420, and Bitcoin, Bitcoin, four-month high. Sort of representative about where stocks have gone, though Joe... Earnings season. Lori Calvacino, RBC. Backdrop continues to soften a challenge for stocks in the very near term. Mm-hmm. Maybe not so much today, though. We have a pretty good day going. Okay, so not so much today. I think it's important to understand sometimes the market is a Warren Buffett market and sometimes the market is a Jim Simons market. And the market over the last week is a Jim Simons market. Let's be clear. Everyone has a fundamental view and you correlate that fund- fundamental view with your longer term investments. I think it's important to point out what's going on in the last several days is completely technically oriented. Nothing's changed in the fundamentals. This is about quantitative strategies that are being affected in the market. Last Wednesday, I was on the show talking about the resistance at 4,005 to 4,010 for the S&P 500. Market washed out down to 3,885. Got all the quant strategies coming right back in again, buying the market up, lifting here into earnings. So Mm -hmm. it's important to define What's the catalyst? There's nothing fundamentally that's really a catalyst. If you look at the macro picture, 10-year yield, 352 last week, 352 today. Dollar basically running in the same spot. Same thing mm-hmm. can be said for oil. So I think it's important to acknowledge that. The debate is the same, right, Steph? Mm. The bearish take versus the bullish take. Bearish take is earnings. The outlook is weakening at the same time that the data is, right? Mike Wilson, Morgan Stanley. Weakness in the leading data is overwhelming. Ed Yardeni. Leading indicators flashing recession signal. The latest NABE survey, the outlook for hiring and CapEx spending turning decidedly negative. Sales and expectations for sales have fallen below pandemic levels. That's the, the bear case. That hasn't changed. The bull case is simply that the Fed's closer to the end. The dollar's weaker. Earnings aren't going to be as bad as feared. Did I leave anything out? No, I'm somewhere, and I'm somewhere in the middle. You know, I've been very cautious all of last year. This year, I actually feel pretty, pretty good, actually. Yes, we're slowing. We've talked about the economy is slow, especially in manufacturing and housing. I mean, that permit number last week was, was just dismal, down 30% year over year, and that's a leading indicator. So that's the bad. But on the positive side, I mean, jobs, right? Yeah. I mean, initial claims, the four-week moving average is down 10% year over year. Lagging indicator, though. Uh, leading actually, leading good, say, lagging. I, no, I would actually say the initial claims are leading. The, the non-farm payroll numbers are lagging. That's the way I have always read it and interpreted it. So the initial claims are good. The JOLTS numbers are still very, very strong. The ADP number was off the charts. 
especially on wages at 7%. And if you switched, you got, you're getting 15% wage growth year over year. So the job market is kind of saving us, if you will, right? It is for and now, then, sure. Well, then at the same time, inflation is starting to come down. CPIs, PPIs, right? I mean, and then, and, and then if you look at gasoline prices, they're down 16% from the highs and commodities in general are down. So that's mm -hmm. good. I'm not saying we're there in terms of what the Fed is comfortable with on inflation, but inflation is coming down and that's good uh, for real incomes for the consumer. And oh, by the way, on the consumer, I know the retail sales number last week was crummy month over month, mm -hmm. but still up 6% year over year. And if you listen to what Coke had to say, if you listen to what P&G had to say, they're talking about the consumers hanging in there and actually doing pretty well so far. Is that going to slow? Certainly it will. Um, but I keep a close eye on consumer because that's 70 percent of U.S. GDP. So back to the earnings question, I don't think earnings are going to be nearly as bad for all the reasons that I just cited. But also you listen to something like a J.B. Hunt and they're saying rail demand is actually strong. They're talking about labor shortages getting better. They're talking about um, inflation coming down. All the things that I just mentioned, they're right. saying it in real time. And so I feel a little bit better about earnings. Expectations are for down 4 percent. Maybe they're going to be flat. Maybe they're up a little bit. So far, so good. 57 companies have reported, 39 have beaten, 17 not so much. Calvacina says you're going to get a growth rate of, of 2%. Jason um, Snipe, the, so you got the bull, bull bear debate, and then you got the wild card in all of that, and that's the risk of a policy mistake, that the Fed mm -hmm. is so fixated on what I think we would determine are lagging indicators, right? And they're ignoring the leading indicators, which are suggesting the economy is weakening fairly quickly. And that raises the issue of over tightening, which others have raised before, which is a principal reason why they're negative on the market, because they say it's just a matter of time. The Fed's is hell bent on doing what they're doing at the same time, where, as I said, these indicators are s suggesting that, you know, they're flashing a recession signal. You got it, Scott. And obviously, the Fed hasn't had a great track record in respect to policy and tightening and, and, and doing what they need to do to potentially slow down the economy. You know, Steph points out a really great point. I mean, the dual mandate, right? So it's inflation and, and the labor market. And inflation is obviously coming down hard, the year-over-year -year numbers. But the month-over-month -month numbers are steadily uh, grinding lower as well. But uh, to her point, you know, the, the labor market is very strong. ADP numbers are strong. Unemployment rate is still low. We're, I mean, it's the best, it's the best employment uh, picture that we've seen in 50 years. So um, it's likely that the Fed will do more than they need to do, unfortunately, which, which will have, uh, you know, not, not a great impact on the economy. So we still remain, we lean defensive, but I think in, from a long-term perspective, obviously you're seeing growth has gotten a bid uh, at the beginning of this year. I do think it's a bear market balance, but there, these prices um, in tech and, and, and comm services have come down dramatically. And I think these are still areas that you could start to accumulate uh, positions in, in these stocks and start your positions and, and really look to the long-term on, on the growth-oriented part of or your portfolio. And I think value, though, um, is still the place you need to be, you know, for this year. Should we, Bryn, be more bullish like Belsky and Labenthal are for, you know, the reasons that they continually suggest and what Steph was just saying? It's like consumer's still strong, job market's still good, earnings are going to be better. Who cares what the Fed says? They're not going to go as far as they think for all the reasons that I, that I just said. So maybe we shouldn't be as negative. That, that's what Labenthal would say or Belsky would say if they were sitting here. 
Well, I think that, first of all, there is such a wide range of outcomes. And so I thought Stephanie walking through all of those things where the glass is, let's say, a little bit half full, she's spot on. That being said, none of this really matters because the Fed is still the visible hand in the market. And as technicals, as the S&P is right above its 200-day moving average, the NASDAQ is almost there. The Fed is going to come out at the end of the month and either going to give us a trajectory to go higher or it's going to slam it right back down. Because what the Fed should do and what the Fed will do are two very different things. And so I don't think the Fed over-tightening is even remotely a wild card. I think that should be people's base case because the Fed has very, very blunt instruments. And if they've had, we've gone from zero rates for basically 10 years to now at the end of the month, we'll be at what, 450, 475. Mm -hmm. If they don't come out and say, hey, we need to stop and look around and we're gonna keep that rhetoric of we're gonna go forward, something will break because as, a, as an economy, we're a creditor's economy and moving that quickly in rates and not stopping, something bad will happen in the credit markets. Yeah. I mean, it's so, not showing today, but something will happen. So, Steph, moves uh, that may be a tell on how we're thinking about the current market conditions. You sold Dollar General. Mm-hmm. You added to DR Horton. Tell me about that. <laughs> So Dollar General did what it was supposed to do. It was very defensive last year. It actually ended up the year up 1% in a market that was down 20. So I'll take that any day. Really well-run company, just more defensive and not cheap at 21 times forward estimates. I like it very much long-term, but I think I have more juice and more upside opportunity in DR Horton. The housing play? Yeah, because I just oh, yeah. told you that permits were down 30%. You think it's going to go down 50%? It's, there's a chance, but I think you're closer to the trough in housing than you are, you know, than, than just in general. I think you're at the trough, kind of either this quarter or next quarter. The stock trades at nine times earnings. They've been paying down debt. Um, I just think this is one of the blue chips in housing. And so it definitely has more beta to it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but I do think housing for 2023 into 24 makes sense. Sure. OK, but fair enough. But of, of all the things you could have sold to be more optimistic in DHI, <laughs> why something that has already proven to you that it can weather the kind of storm that we you know, have arguably entered into. Right. Well, see, the, I think... To the, the degree to which, whether it's a tropical storm or a hurricane. Right, right, right. Now, I think last year was the year to be more defensive. I think this year you want to be more offensive. And you've seen it, actually, in terms of growth outperforming value. Bitcoin, to your point <laughs> earlier on, it's actually up quite a, a lot. ARC, she's up 19% year to day. So there's a little bit more beta to this market this year. And maybe you're just... Well, just just so far, though, you buy into that, though? I don't know. I mean, like, well, I wouldn't chase here for sure. But you believe in it? I don't know. No, I mean, I'm not... I don't believe in Bitcoin and ARC, okay, at this point in time. I'm just saying... I'm I'm saying the message that you're suggesting is being sent to the market. You believe in that message. I think that you want to have... I think you want to have a little more beta this year. I do. I really do. Last year was the year to be defensive. I think we're disc- last year we were discounting what was going to happen this year in the economy, right? And so we don't know about recession. We do know it's going to slow down. We don't know the degree. So, okay, what don't we know, right? And some valuations are really pretty attractive. And some may be rich, like well, some of these defensive plays. Well, there's, yes. a, there's a strong chance that stocks discounted a far more ominous outcome yeah. for the economy. And both in the, in the case of, of D.R. Horton and Lennar, which in October we bought for Joe T., it's a classic example of the stocks discounted, show the resiliency in, in an environment where housing overall is continuing to contract. So that's a great example, I think, of what's going on in the market right now. Now, I agree with you. 
there appears to be more of an appetite for a lot of the higher beta plays so far in 2023. And I think that complicates the investment strategy because I think overwhelmingly most people aren't there. Mm-hmm. You heard Jason say he's defensive. I know in my strategies I'm defensively oriented. So people stepped into 2023 a little bit more conservative. So it goes back to, okay, how? How exactly do you want to take advantage of an opportunity where you want a little bit more beta exposure to your point, the economy looks a little better than we suspect. How exactly do you implement that strategy? And back to what Scott's highlighting, I don't think you still want to accept the risk in those hypergrowth names, no. Bitcoin, uh, and, I, and, and a lot of the highly speculative assets. Right, but I can get beta from some industrials. I can get beta from energy. I can get some beta from financials. So there How about healthcare, are, which is down year doesn't to ha- uh, One of my top holdings now is GE Healthcare, right? right? So, I mean, I totally agree with you on that, and you've been right on that all last year. Your healthcare call was great. Um, but I just think you don't have to go to these high beta or high valuation names, mm-hmm. right? You don't have to go to the arcs of the world to get that beta. You can find it just about in every industry. You just got to look and so, gotta pick. Bryn, how do you assess, you know, the, this part of the conversation that we're talking about? You know, Steph's move into, you know, uh, uh, the home builder is fine, but out of what was deemed as a defensive stock that held up well, certainly better than most, uh, but now maybe time to switch the way you think about this market. It is interesting because, I mean, I totally get, I get her trade because if you look at like consumer staples in general, consumer staples have some of the highest multiples of all, if not the highest of all sectors. You have seen so many people went very heavy into defensive last year. And if you do are under the, the narrative that, hey, the economy isn't gonna be as bad as I thought it was gonna be, take profits on that and go into something like a home builder. Because to me, the home builders have been so incredible to watch because to Joe's point, like I owned Lennar, I bought Lennar at like 65 and then sold it like at 80 because I thought, well, for sure it's gonna come down it never has. I mean, the home builders have continued to be one of the strongest sectors since that October low. And so I do think as investors, the economy and the stock market are two different things. The stock market will, will, will price in the economy well before it happens. And so that's where it's like the Mike Wilsons of the world that are where at 3,300 versus the Tom Lees. I mean, you could drive a bus through the strategist this year. And so I like Steph's approach of kind of going down the middle saying, hey, I'm not going to focus on all the high beta tech, but I'm going to do beta in some other areas where I find aren't so aren't so techy, but still can give me good growth. But it doesn't have to be, Jason, the highest of high beta tech, though. I mean, there are those like a Tom Lee who suggests that mega cap tech could go up 50 percent this year. Right. There are others as well. Dan mm-hmm. Ives. Right. He says the drum roll is finally here for key tech earnings because we know Microsoft, obviously, tomorrow and overtime. Um, they reiterate their call that they believe tech stocks will be up 20% this year and are way oversold at current levels. So while we're fixated on, you know, the ARC stuff because it's up so substantially to start the year relative to others, I'm looking at Apple at one pushing 142. Or actually, I'm sorry, that's Tesla pushing 142. No, it wasn't that long ago we were wondering if it was going to go below 100. Apple, I'll pull that up right now. That's at 142 also. Um, 125 is the stock was not that long ago. And you know what, Scott, I totally agree with, with Steph's points and, and, and actually what Bryn just said and as it relates to 
you know, these high, high multiple stocks, I don't think you need, again, there's been some bottom fishing. A lot of these names have, have dramatically jumped. The Twilio's, the Shopify's of the world, the ARC names, like we were all talking about. I look at comm services. I mean, comm services was the worst sector in the market last year, down 37%. Year to date, it's up 10%, and 84% of, this, of the sector is trading above its 50 days. So do you believe in I that I do move? believe. You believe you, in that? So I'll say this. I, I believe in, in what Steph is talking about. The non-profitable areas of the market, the super high beta names, I don't think um, that has more traction here in this market with the Fed that's still engaged. But I do think you know, some, of the, you know, some of the mega cap names, some of the software names, even some in the semi-space, you see some of the upgrades we saw today, can still work here. Yes, they're, they're, they're expensive, a premium to the market, but they can still work. It's just that the non-profitable stuff I'm not interested at this stage. Like, Bryn, it's either legit or it's a great head fake and one hell of a head fake <laughs> from, from some of these tech moves. Hey, we've, we've had head fakes all of last year. And so I think that what's happening is that, obviously, the bond market is telling you the Fed is done. And therefore, tech names with yields going lower everywhere but Fed funds are rallying towards that. I think that what's going to happen, though, during earnings, that's really going to be this quarter's earnings is where the rubber meets the road. And so if these, like, if NVIDIA, which has had an inventory glut, which Jensen's talked about, if he's like, hey, our inventory has been worked off, then guess what? NVIDIA, which is now over its 200-day moving average, mm -hmm. probably continues to go higher. And so it's like we need to hear from these companies' earnings. And so will they do a kitchen sink this quarter just because they're doing layoffs? There's a, there's a negative narrative. But I, I do think, though, that it's still too early to say, let's go back into these names. I don't see how Apple and Microsoft are up 50% this year. That would put them at all-time highs. I just, don't, I just don't see that happening at this point. Yeah. There's still, by the way, as we move away from that, because we're going to talk about chips coming up later on in the show, because a really interesting call on some names that we need to discuss. But I want to hit energy for a moment, because there's still a lot of optimism around that, including Adam Parker of Trivariate today, who says, quote, the median energy stock has never been cheaper. They see demand growth outpacing supply growth. This is the core reason he says we are bullish on energy equities. Chenier, Valero, Chevron, EOG, Halliburton, Kinder, Apache, Hess, One Oak, Exxon, EQT, Phillips 66, Oxy. I mean, go down the list. Bryn, they like these stocks still. Do you? For sure. I mean, if you're going to look, if you had one metric to analyze a company, that's it. P.E., price to sales, peg ratio, et cetera. The single best metric historically you could have used is free cash flow yield. And when I look at the energy sector as a whole, it right now has a free cash flow yield of over 11%. To give some perspective, the S&P is about four. The next biggest sector is communication services at six. And so it's like these companies are being financially responsible. They're paying down debt. They're doing smart buybacks. They're giving more back to shareholders. And so, yes, the commodity of nat gas and oil is volatile. And I think that's why they're still cheap, is a lot of people just don't believe it. But when you have a sector that is now the fourth biggest contributor to the S&P by earnings, if you don't own the sector, I, I think you're just continuing to miss out on high quality cash flow, especially when people want income and yield. Mm -hmm. Joe, your names are all over this list. EOG, Pioneer, Valero. So far in 2023, the relative outperformance in energy equities to the spot price of oil and natural gas is astounding. Mm -hmm. Energy equities are up 4.5%. Natural gas is down 25% so far year to date. Mm -hmm. 
Oil is struggling to maintain a 2% gain. We are experiencing a significantly warm weather both here in that the U.S. That gas is 3 bucks. Both in the Barely. U.S. and in Europe. Mm -hmm. Everyone told you that a, a, a weather event was coming in Europe and in the U.S. And if you sat back in your chair for you and, and said, OK, well, on January 23rd, it never happened. Where would energy equities be? You'd say they'd be down 10 percent, especially given two consecutive years of outperformance. But yet here they are outperforming once again. And to Bryn's point, it goes back to the balance sheet. It goes back to disincentivizing them to take the incremental dollar of revenue that's being generated and putting it back in the wellhead. They're buying back their shares. They're focused on the dividend. They're repairing their debt. And that's exactly why you want to stay with them. Steph, Chevron, Oxy, you just added to Slumberger on Friday, SLB, uh, Diamondback. You agree with Adam Parker? Yes, I do agree with Adam. The valuations are so cheap because earnings are going up higher. Every single quarter, earnings are going higher. Free cash flow, as Bryn and Joe mentioned, really is the key stat, right? They're, they're printing money at oil at, at this price. They're printing money at oil even $10 lower than where it is currently. So I like the visibility in terms of earnings. I like the fact that their CapEx has come down over the last many years. They've underinvested. Instead, they're returning it to shareholders in dividends and buybacks. And so, yeah, Summer Jay was a great quarter. They beat earnings. Uh, they beat revenues. EBITDA came in 3% ahead of expectations. And I've always talked about this company being a tech, hidden technology gem. And their digital and integration margins were up 380 basis points sequentially. Mm -hmm. So that is just really fuel from, for the fire. No pun intended. Fuel, fuel for the fire for the story, in my opinion. It's not cheap, but they have the best momentum and in international activity as well. All right. We'll take a quick break. Straight ahead. It's our chart of the day. Shares of Salesforce are higher. Activists now circling the tech giant. Halftime committee members Jim Labenthal, Kerry Firestone, they own it. They join us next to weigh in on what all of this means. The stock's up 4%. We're back in two. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash report. That is linkedin.com slash report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash report and get started. Let's get to our chart of the day. We said it is Salesforce. Now you've, I mean, you've got... Activists are circling this company. Paul Singer, Elliott Management, Jeff Ubbins, Inclusive Capital, the latest to emerge here. So we have Jim Labenthal, Kerry Firestone. They join us now because both are in the stock, and I want both of their takes. Kerry, you first. Uh, you know, you've had activists. We've known about it. But now you've got a party. 
and they've all showed up. <laughs> so what do you think? Exactly. Well, Jeff Ubben is a great guy, and he's one of my former colleagues at Fidelity, so I'm very pleased he's in the stock. This is a, this is a company that used to have 50,000 employees before the pandemic. They got to over 80,000. And I think rightly, they've understood that the margins have been compressed in, in part because of costs, also on the revenue side. But they're starting to cut headcount. They can cut plenty more. There's been a slowdown in ordering, and they've acknowledged that this environment has made the ordering of signing up big new corporate clients a much longer process. Well, that will abate eventually, and we'll start to see a resumption. But in the meantime, margins can improve significantly. The stock is... It's down 50% from November of 2021. The margin can improve. Then we believe that the PE will improve. And the leverage is there tremendously over the next couple of years to bring that, those earnings numbers up higher than expectations. So we've been a buyer, and we, you know, we think there's a long way to go. So you're happy to see the emergence of all of these activist names in the stock? Bring them on. Bring them on. <laughs> Jim, is that your take? Uh, pretty much. And I liked what uh, Kerry said. I better be careful. You know, the, we don't want to be blasé about people losing their jobs, but it's very clear that this uh, uh, company got too big. Uh, it needs to cut more. I think that's probably why Mr. Singer and Elliott Management are coming in. Now, they're coming in with velvet gloves. They're saying nice things. We're going to work with management. But let's not forget that this is a company that has a long history of being very activist. I mean, 10 years ago, they commandeered uh, a, an Argentine sailing ship uh, from the Navy when they were in a fight with Argentina about debt. So they will play hardball if softball doesn't work. But I think the, the end of the day here, it is about margins because sales growth is going to slow. Right. They're not going to grow at the 25% is, rate. Let me of the ask you this year. way. Is hardball needed? Right. You're a shareholder here. Is hardball needed at this point in time? Probably. It's hard to say. And we're going to see in the coming weeks how Mr. Benioff and Mr. Singer play together. Do they play nice or not? Now, Mr. Benioff created this company and he has a reason to have a big ego about it. He may not take kindly to outsiders coming in and telling him what to do. But it would be wise for all parties if they play nicely together and do what needs to get done, which is mainly to improve margins in a declining growth rate environment. Jason Snipe, you recently sold it, you know, I don't know, six weeks or so yep. ago. So why don't you weigh in why you got out of the stock and what you make of this news? Yeah, so for me, I, first of all, Salesforce is a great company. I think Mark Benioff is a tremendous leader. You know, my concern all around the stock is, is to what Jimmy and, and Kerry just talked about, about the margins, right? And the other thing is, you know, deals were taking a lot longer to get done. You know, some of these larger enterprise deals. And, and, and profitability is a concern for me going forward. There's obviously some disruption at the top. They've, they've announced some job cuts and the financial reengineering, which all companies do in, in, in slowdowns. But, you know, with Elliott getting involved, Elliott obviously has a tremendous track record as it relates to kind of improving companies and, and getting them to be operationally efficient. I think this is a, this is a tailwind for the stock. But I'm going to kind of wait and see, take a step back. Let's, let's look at it in a couple quarters and maybe reevaluate my position here. Kara, you see yourself as a long-term investor in this name? Absolutely. We've owned the stock for a long time. I believe in it. I've owned Salesforce at various times since 2002, I think, when Mark Benioff took it public. I remember that first IPO meeting at Fidelity. And I've been a believer in the company. I think that he understands 
that it got a little overextended in many ways. He understands that there's work to be done. And, and we believe that in enterprise software, these guys are the best. I mean, we run on Salesforce here. It's hard not to mm -hmm. if you're in a business with you have customers. So yes, the answer is we're long-term owners and we think there is great upside potential. All right, Kerry, thank you. Jim Labenthal, thank you. I'll see thank both you. of you soon. Let's finish it on, on the desk here. Kerry uses an interesting word here, overextended. And I'm thinking, Joe, about the ripe environment that we have for activists this Absolutely. year. I, Be, right, because of many companies got, you could argue, overextended. Their stocks are down a bunch. Margins are a big question. How do you protect margins in, in the environment when you're downsizing and everything else? What do you think? I think we're mind melding. That's throughout that conversation. That's what I'm thinking, that activism is back. It's alive. It's well. The walls are being torn down when you have the market that's repricing valuations in the way that it did in 2022. Some of the CEOs that are experiencing the activism right now, previously, we would never think that the challenge would be put forth. But it is. And I think in 23, you're going to see more companies that you're going to be surprised at in which activism is going to be present. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Steph, quick on that. Yeah, I mean, I, I have it with firsthand with Disney, right? And yep. hopefully Nelson, yep. well, Peltz will, will prevail. Unimaginable. Un unimaginable, that's exactly right. So companies that are not getting it done should be facing whom pressure. Whom, Peltz, by the way, whom, whom you've said, you're voting with the activists. Yes, absolutely. But I, I, I think this is a great move. The only problem I have is, yeah, profitability has been a concern. Can that improve? It's going to take time. Enterprise spend, I think, is going to be slowing, especially in cloud. And number three, and this stock trades at 31 times EBITDA. So I can find a million other technology companies out there. Maybe they don't have activists with them, but I can find more attractive risk reward stores. It's a lot cheaper than it was. Well, that's for sure. All right, we'll take a quick break. Coming up, it's the 30th anniversary of the SPY. It's the first U.S.-listed ETF and the largest. Where the ETF industry is heading from here, we'll do that next right here on The Half. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to the Halftime Report. I'm Bertha Coombs, and here's your CNBC News update at this hour. Richard Barnett, the man photographed with his feet on Nancy Pelosi's desk on January 6th, 2021 has been found guilty on eight charges stemming from the insurrection, including theft of government property. He said repeatedly in court last week that he regretted what had transpired at the Capitol that day, but did not consider his actions illegal. Jury selection begins today in the double murder trial of Alex Murdoch. The South Carolina attorney is accused of fatally shooting his wife and son in 2021. Murdoch arrived at the Colleton County Courthouse today, along with his attorneys and the prosecution. And visitors braved sub-zero temperatures to visit temple fairs in Beijing, celebrating the second day of the week-long Chinese New Year holiday. While smaller fairs have resumed in Beijing suburbs, the famously large fairs in central Beijing remain shut, despite the government easing its stringent zero-COVID policies in December. 
Scott, back over to okay. you. Okay, Bertha, thank you. That's Bertha Coombs. Now to Bob Pisani with today's ETF Edge, marking a big anniversary, Bob. It is, Scotty. Thank you. Welcome to the ETF Edge portion of Halftime Report. 30 years ago this week, State Street Global Advisors launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF. The symbol is SPY, the first U.S.-based exchange-traded fund which tracked the S&P 500. It launched a revolution in indexing and low-cost investing. Today, it's the largest ETF in the world, $370 billion in assets. Also, it's the most actively traded as well. Let's talk to the man in charge of that. Rory Tobin is global head of the Spider ETF business at State Street Global Advisors. Good to see you, uh, Tori. This is the ETF, you know, that launched a thousand ships in the United States. It's still the flagship ETF out there. Why has it remained such a popular investment vehicle among even buy and hold and active traders? Everybody trades and owns this. Bob, listen, thank you. Great, great to be here. And thank you very much for those very kind words about SPY, our, our very first ETF. I think before I even kick into that, I think I just want to say a tribute to all of those who set up SPY, uh, a small band of innovators 30 years ago. I, the story was this, that the fund came out of the financial market crisis of 1987. And uh, a, a small bunch of people, Nate Most, Kathleen Moriarty, some who are no longer here, but they really did something truly innovative in terms of the launch of the first ETF in the U.S., now $370 billion, trading $39 billion uh, on an average day in the U.S. And that fund has really created a revolution in investing. Uh, what yeah. ETFs did, they really created, uh, it was a democratic access. It gives the same investment management content to every investor, regardless of your size, and you got it at the same yeah. price. And I think that yeah. proposition became really, really powerful. Yeah, and yet SPY has had some outflows in recent years. You've got a lot of cheaper competitors, including one of your own. Does it worry you that you're getting some outflows while some of the competitors have been getting inflows? Yeah, we'd always like to get more inflows than outflows, but I think SPY is holding its own in terms of its market share and its presence in the marketplace. SPY is very much a capital markets instrument. It's moved on from just being a buy and hold ETF SPY is now used by a whole variety of investors, asset owners, asset managers, intermediaries, financial advisors. They choose it for liquidity on a daily basis. This fund trades at a one penny widespread every single day on a $400 base. So the fund, and it has extraordinary inflows and outflows. Our largest peak day was back in the crisis of 2007, about $15 billion of inflows in one, in one day. So that gives you real resilience and robustness, and that's also highly yeah. valued by all the option markets. It's, it's amazing to me to watch the ETF grow by growth. I've been seeing this for 20 years. Do you, do you see any break on the growth of the business? There's $7 trillion in ETFs, still $20 trillion in mutual funds. Can the ETF business overtake the mutual fund industry? Some people are now saying within five years that could happen. We're starting to see trends around that, definitely, Bob. The ETFs, when you think about when they first started off, it was very much around passive equities. Then it became passive fixed income. Then it was commodities. And now more recently, particularly the passage of the ETF rule in 2019, we've now seen adoption of ETFs by active managers. And you're starting to see a real, real trend. Last year, we had about 17% of the flows in ETFs were into active ETFs. Last year was also the second best year ever for ETF inflows, about $620 billion of new money. And think about that, that's $620 billion of new money into ETFs in a market where both equities and fixed income were down 20% year in year. So it's, it's extraordinary inflows. Active gives you a new leg. It's both active and uh, active equity and fixed income. And I think that is yeah. an incremental avenue of growth. 
Okay, much more coming up on ETF Edge at 3 p.m. Eastern Time. Now, Rory's going to be joined by Todd Rosenbluth, the head of research for Vetify, as we expand our discussion on why indexing at a strategy, as a strategy has challenged active management, why ETFs as the wrapper for indexing has done so well, and it's now, as I said, challenging mutual funds as the investment vehicle of choice. That's ETFedge.cnbc.com, 3 p.m. Eastern Time. Scott, back to you. All right, Bob, good stuff. Look forward to that. Thank you. Coming up. One area of the market on pace for its best month since November. A few of the big players in the group getting upgrades today. We debate the trades in our call of the day. It's next. All right, let's do our call of the day. It's a big one on some semi names and look at them responding today. It's Qualcomm up near 7%, AMD near 8, Seagate a little more than 6. So Barclays goes to overweight on those three names. They say the outlook for chips is, quote, getting more positive. We underestimated the amount of money that wanted to move into semis, and we don't see the group testing October lows. So Jason Snipe, NVIDIA, okay, they didn't upgrade the stock, but they did upgrade the price target to 250 from 170, and they talk about opportunities in AI. You've got that, and you do have Qualcomm, which they call the clear leader at the high end, and part of it is China reopening. Yeah, so for me, as it relates to semis, and obviously they got punished last year, um, I look at NVIDIA and Qualcomm as really our barbell. You know, obviously NVIDIA has a lot more beta. You know, it's, it's in the, it stands in the front of innovation. I mean, it's a beltway of innovation. You know, stock is up 27% year to date. You know, it trades at 56 times earnings, but I just think there's continued runways as they continue to innovate. You know, as it relates to Qualcomm, Qualcomm is just starting to diversify their product mix away from the handset. It trades at 12 times earnings. It's up 17 percent year to date. So I I really like the way we're trying to play this semi space again. Semis are the new cyclical that are powering a lot of what we do in everyday life. So I I like I like these upgrades here and I I like these two stocks for sure. Uh, Joe, is the outlook, as they suggest, quote, getting more positive for this space? I think the time to believe that was a few months back when we discussed semis and I said I thought it was an example of first in first out that's where the industry was back to Steph's point on beta that's exactly what I did I traded down in the semis for lower beta I got out of AMD I got out of Nvidia but I purchased Texas Instruments the Joe T strategy has KLA Corp it has on semi it has microchip lower beta so i think it's the right place to be but beta has been the place to be i think long term a lower beta exposure to the industry is the right place to be and let's remember just fundamentally i think taiwan semi with their capex Mm -hmm. outlook in 2023 that kind of telegraphed a little bit more confidence that a recovery could potentially come steph you don't have these three but you got lamb and broadcom yeah, and I got more aggressive over the summer, as you know. I mean, I think I was on every week telling you that I was buying more Lamb and more Broadcom. Uh, Broadcom last quarter had the best quarter of the semiconductor industry, and so I still like that one very, very much. It's actually lagged the industry because it was actually one of the outperformers last year, barely. So it's up 4%, trades at 14 times. Data center is 35% of their total revenues. AI is also very important for them, but enterprise is a big piece, and that remains very, very strong. And so. 
people were concerned, myself included, a year ago at this time about mm -hmm. double and triple ordering. That was a time to sell, and that's what we did. Um, and I just thought it got too negative uh, over by the summer time frame. And it, again, 14 times earnings with a 3.5% dividend yield. The one that's a little more controversial is Lamb Research because uh, we know that WFE pricing is going to be coming down, way for fab equipment spend. It's going to be coming down. But I would argue at 13 times, we already know this and that you're in the process of troughing. And so I agree with the analysts because I think that maybe we're early, first, second quarter, maybe we bottom. Second half, though, I do think you're going to see a recovery, and it's going to be too late by then to be buying these stocks when you actually see the results. We have, like, a lot of inventory, though, to work off, don't we, from the double and triple ordering that you suggested. Now there's a glut, not a shortage of chips. Right, and estimates have come down, and valuations are kind of reflecting that. And so that's why I say we might be a little early, Scott. Maybe it's the second half. That's what this analyst is saying, by the way. It's really more second half. I'm just trying to anticipate that things do get better in the next couple of quarters, and I'm willing to, to hold on to these names given the valuations. All right, Santoli, he's up next with his midday word. Plus, we are getting ready to grade your trade. Email us, gaskhalftime at CNBC.com. You can tweet us as well. Use the hashtag GradeMyTrade. We'll be right back. We're back on the Halftime Report. There he is, Mike Santoli, our senior markets commentator. For his midday word from the New York Stock Exchange, what, what are you thinking today? What is this, um, what's this about? You know, it's about a few things, Scott. I think we woke up to, um, you know, the Wall Street Journal essentially confirming what we sort of thought, which is the Fed likely to go small next week with a quarter point Fed rate hike. Then at 10 a.m., there's no denying the fact the market took a kick higher at that point with the very weak leading economic uh, indicators number. Uh, it sort of seems like a bad news is good news. You want to have the Fed uh, maybe being done, even as the overall level of economic activity in the here and now doesn't seem so bad. Companies are getting ahead of it, trying to defend profit margins with cost cuts. Uh, I also think it's relevant that if you look at the LEI and where the weakness is, it all continues to be in either housing, which we've known has been weak for a while and maybe is stabilizing, and survey stuff. Consumer and business surveys are where the real weakness is, as opposed to the somewhat harder data. It doesn't mean a recession's not coming. It doesn't mean that, you know, we don't have to deal with a lot of the back and forth staticky indicators. But I think that's where the market right now said, OK, fine, you can continue to reload on risk because people came into the year pretty offside, not owning enough. Uh, and then here we are. I, I don't think it's going to be this way. We rip higher into the Fed meeting. That would be very surprising. And of course, S&P coming right into that downtrend line we've been talking about for months as we speak. Well, last week we were, you know, almost thinking that, OK, maybe bad news was bad news. Yeah. Again, because it just underscored the fact that the Fed is going to over tighten into what is an obviously slowing exactly. economy. And look, we, we're, we could be back there in, in 10 minutes in, in that mode. But what we don't have today is a complete buying panic in long-term treasuries. It's compressing yields to the point where it gives everybody else uh, a sense of, oh, no, uh, there's no way out of this. And so today you have yields firming higher, and maybe that's the difference uh, so far today. All right. I'll see you in a bit. That's Mike Santoli. Yep. Uh, he'll join us for his last word, of course, in overtime coming up. In a few hours' time, Grade My Trade is up next. You still can send us an email, askhalftime at cnbc.com. You can tweet us as well. We'll do it next. All right, let's do Grade My Trade. Joe, you're up first from Peter P.J. Cool. Calls himself in Queens, New York. Okay. Hey, guys, I'm 19 years old, new to this. I purchased Archer Daniels at 86.77 last Thursday. All right, last Thursday. Long-term thoughts, what do you think? I thought, first of all, I like PJ. He's got confidence. I, I, I like that. He's young. He's 19. He's got time on his side. I'd look at this as a more of a longer-term investment. If you're thinking of a trade, 
understand they're going to report earnings on Thursday. They're up against some tough comps, so you could expect some downside pressure here. But overall, on a secular basis, I like the ag story. Okay, Bryn, Kareem in D.C. Uh, I bought Coterra Energy, $29.73. Thank you for recommending Devin and Viper. Uh, great job, Katera, based out of Houston, my home home city. Listen, Katera is like all of what's right in the energy company, in the energy complex. They last year had about a 10% distribution yield. They had billions of free cash flow. They're paying down debt. Their distribution yield last year was close to 10%. This year, though, I would expect more from 6 to 8%, but definitely a great name in the space, generated a ton of free cash flow in the Permian and Marcellus. No. So let's stick with it. All right, Jason Snipe from Dell in Florida. Started buying PayPal around 77 bucks on January 18th, last Wednesday. You own that. Yeah, I like this trade. I, I, I give it an A. You know, obviously PayPal was punished last year, but Elliott is in there, and, and they're really focusing on cost-cutting, margin improvement, and focus on their existing base, which I, which I believe they could really have some room to monetize that. Also, Venmo is a juggernaut, so I like this trade. Okay, and Stephanie Link, finally, from Lucy in California, added to my J&J &J position on Friday. A lot of these are recent trades, which we like. 168, great it. Well, I like this stock, this stock Lucy, um, and, and thanks for participating. This is just a quality company. Um, they have a best-in-class pharma business. Their med tech business should recover as the economy recovers, and of course, they're going to spin out the consumer business later this year, much later this year. So I like it, though. The valuation is not commanding at 16 times. You get a 2.7% yield. So I would hold on to this. Be careful of the quarter tomorrow. They're going to get hit by currency, but I think that, too, will pass as we go through this year. Okay. All right. Good stuff. Thank you, everybody. Final trades are next. All right, overtime, 4 o'clock Eastern. I hope you'll join me. We've got Cameron Dawson on today from New Edge. Low Tony's going to join us for his outlook on these tech earnings with Microsoft looming. B of A, Merrill's, Chris Heisey, his playbook, and Ken Squire. We just talked about whether this uh, environment is ripe for activism, obviously, with this new news today. Paul Singer's Elliott and Salesforce and everything else going on there. Let's do finals. Bryn, what you got? I'm going to stick with energy, um, Viper Energy, a subsidiary of Diamondback. They own mineral rights for oil and gas. Mm -hmm. Mineral rights are the lowest of CapEx in the industry, probably a 6 to 8% total distribution yield. Okay. Jason Snipe? I like Qualcomm here. They continue to diversify the product mix. They're going to work down that inventory. Stay long, Qualcomm. Okay. Got part of that big call today. Joe T, since Qualcomm is in. The Joe T. Abbott Labs, a little bit of an emerging market healthcare play. Uh, I like it sitting here at 114. Okay, GE Healthcare. GE Healthcare, Link. yes, a spin from GE, mm -hmm. best in class in the right. business, and they have operating margin potential. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, 
The ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.